0: Alright, we will go ahead and get started. It uh when I typically come in with the teens I just say hi to a couple of people and, and uh walk upstairs and uh today it seemed like the whole which was great, the whole way back I there's so many people to talk with that it took took forever <laughs> it took forever to get back here. Um but let's open up with a word of prayer and then we will we will dig in. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us and uh we're reminded with warm weather yesterday and, and warm wet spring weather today and we're reminded by walking into a church building and seeing there's this person that encourages me. There's this person that's come alongside me. There's this person going through challenging circumstances and and we, we bundle that all together and recognize your good hand. We recognize our, our weakness. We recognize What a gift it is to be able to come together as a body of believers. And Lord, may we in this study of church history, not just hear a bunch of facts, but may we see how you have worked in the past and see your trustworthiness as you work both now and in the future. And uh, may we big picture see see Christ and our need and your fulfillment and, and your goodness to us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So, in in our church history class, we're we're not going to be covering exactly how it was lined up in our schedule. We're going to be spending, we're going to be covering about two hundred years in each class period, up until pre-Reformation. We're going to slow down a little bit in pre-Reformation. The Reformation will go about half the speed that we are. In these early weeks, and then um, post-Reformation will go a little bit slower as well, just because there's there's more things to cover. There's more things that are probably good for us to spend some time with, and I think some more things that we can see. Oh, here's here's how God is working, how He has shown Himself in this way, and this way, and this way, and and kind of how how we can learn from that and benefit from that today. So so it won't be exactly how you saw in the schedule, but it'll be. It'll be roughly along those lines. Um, Andrew Fendrick, who's uh, doing security today, and Dwayne Baldwin are going to be teaching a couple lessons as well. And Andrew, actually, next week is going to do a short study on uh, one individual uh, during, during the class as well. So if we want to start off just a little bit, well, several of you know lots of stuff about church history, lots of details, enjoy it. Some of you in here might not have much interest at all But let me just start off with a person that's fairly familiar to some. That would be uh, the church father, Origen. I'll just tell a little bit of his story, and then we can kind of see how that fits in the the framework of church history. So uh, Origen was born in Alexandria, Egypt, I think um, um, 184, maybe, uh, A.D. Um, His dad was a, a leader in Alexandria, Um, he, there was persecution going on. He, his dad, uh, was, has taught them well about martyrdom. His dad comes in and, and has warned him and taught him and warned him and taught him. And there was a group at that time that thought martyrdom might bring you better, a better afterlife. Um, that might be a preferable way to die. Um, there was groups, there was pockets in the Roman world at that time that, that thought that the chance of living to old age is, is, is gone. You know, there would, they would be times of persecution and times of less persecution. Um, and so Origen wanted to die with his dad. It was like, hey, I'm in, let's go. Um, they were a wealthy-ish family. Um, the story is told that his mom hid his clothes. You know, he came out because it was, it was in the early, early morning. Um, he came out and just whatever he was going to wear at night and uh, it wasn't a ton of clothes, and uh, his dad's getting dragged off, said, I'm going to go too, and couldn't find his clothes, and his mom, I guess, had, had buried them somewhere, so he couldn't leave, and uh, uh, so Origen stays there. He actually, you know, he's a brilliant guy. He writes a, a treatise on martyrdom that, that was spread all over the place. People didn't know it was written by a kid, <laughs> a high school-aged kid. Um, Origen doesn't become a martyr, as his father did. Um, He ends up getting more education, ends up teaching there in Alexandria, ends up um, going to Caesarea, which is, think, Israel um, just north of where Tel Aviv is today, Um, just a little bit south and right on the uh, water, um, just just south of kind of where Nazareth is, but over on the water, and uh, establishes um, you know, he's like kind of the premier thinker of his day. He's crazy smart. You always read about these crazy smart people. And I know Spurgeon's known for he would be dictating in two people and sometimes a third person. Spurgeon's known for he would be speaking three sermons at one time. He did this at least some where he'd, be, he'd have a large room and he would go to this guy and work. He would verbally be giving him a sermon to write down and then go to the next guy and the next guy. And he could keep three sermons going at once, which for me... I. I think it's hard at sometimes when you have one sermon going at once and someone calls you and you're re really getting your brain going again. But um, Origen supposedly had six at one time that he was, uh, he could keep six people going, writing six books at the same time and going from person to person. He had a, a really wealthy individual kind of enabled him to do that. Um, he was a thinker, a scholar, a teacher. He had a, a book that he wrote that was only they think only one of them was actually um, written. It was a hexapla, which is uh, the Hebrew Old Testament. So we had the Old Testament, and then he had you know Greek was the language of that time. So then he had um, kind of it, it, it written in Greek, so so they could see how to pronounce the words, and then they had four different Greek translations. And he had them all in columns. So it took I think it was a 15 volume set. It was actually uh, kept in a in a um, Coptic or Christian Church in Egypt, and it was the only copy of it, and probably when Islam took over Egypt, which would have been like 630-ish, let's say, uh, along with other stuff, that one got wiped out. But I can't fathom a 15-volume, handwritten, bunches of people working on it and keeping it organized like that. Um, Origin, lots of scribes. Oh, he was really into super simple life. Um, You know, he would drink only water. A lot of times he would sleep on the floor, didn't want to be in a bed, didn't want any of the excesses of the life going on. Um, Very, very um, into allegorical interpretation. So if you read translations of origin today, you would say, some of the stuff you would say, oh, that's terrific. And other stuff you would think, how how do you get that? You know, he was always looking for allegory in every, in virtually everything. Uh, at least a, a many of the texts that he interacts with he 's looking for allegory in them as well. Um, he did not look at allegory when it said you know if if your arm offends you, cut it off, and he probably castrated himself uh, in his twenties um, took that one literally of all the ones you want to allegorize, that might be one to uh, Put on the list there, but he did not. He took that one literally and and most probably did that Um, under the persecution of Decius, which was in like the 250s. Yeah, just to kind of since it's morning, yeah, refresh our minds here the difference between allegory and say analogy or literal. Yeah, I probably don't have time to go into a bunch of that, but but he would he would say a a true statement in scripture, um, he would say, Well, that really means. Uh, so, we could have a story of, um, of uh, name, name a story in scripture. And he would say, well, that's not really about that story. That is, that's a story of, of, that's Jesus and this guy interacting when that's not really anything with a story at all. So, Origen did some crazy stuff with allegory. And that's a good question, but you can look that up. I'm sure you could Google Oregon's allegories and find some pretty interesting stuff about that if you, if you wanted to. Um, under persecution of Decius, he's jailed. He's actually freed. And some people say he died on the way home, but he might have died up to three years later. And um, his earthly life was over. He wrote against Celsus. And um, Celsus was a pagan uh, writer who believed that Mary he was Celsus was the first pagan among other things he was the first to really push that Mary had a had baby Jesus with a Roman soldier. So that's a a little bit of information on origin. So when we look think of church history what are we trying to do or what are we trying to know? So what if we looked at these things through the life of origin just a little bit, just cause origin can be an example. So here's, here's four things that, that I get from church history. And some of you might love history and some of you might have no interest at all. I know I, I have people I know that will say, history doesn't interest me a bit, it's just a bunch of dates and all these people that are dead and who cares. And, and, and there can be some truth there, there can be a lot of dates and generally those people are dead. Um, but I, I find it pretty, I find it just really interesting. Um, I like hearing stories. And so, I'm not a huge movie guy, but I like hearing stories of what happened to people, and how did they get through this, and, and what was all this stuff going on, and, 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 and how can this teach me? So, I, I think that history is interesting, and I hope to do this in an interesting way. Um, I don't, we're not going to be giving you and the other guys that are teaching, we're not gonna be giving a million dates. We might throw some dates out there, but don't stress yourself about remembering them. But dates can kind of give you like little, little stops in your and say, okay, oh, so that was before this or after this. And some people think dates in their mind, some of you in here, and some of you don't at all. So don't, don't stress about dates. Don't even worry about it. But if I give them, it's just for some people that can be helpful. Um, I think church history is a warning to us. I think it's a warning that, that we can be wrong. You know, what's, what's something, so in, in Origen's life, um, what's something that, that he might have done wrong, even that I mentioned there? Or maybe something that you know about Origen. Failing to allegorize castration. Yes, yes. <laughs> that would be an excellent example, Pastor Mark. Thank you. I think there is a, a lot of times you read church history and people will be so, oh, I know that this is the only way because I live in the year 2022 and I know that this is the only way because, you know, goodness knows I was born in this year and I've seen, I've seen life and I know how things are. It is healthy for us to see, oh, here is someone who was, and maybe not necessarily in Origins' case, but maybe in some others, where here is someone who was very educated and very smart and was a leading person of the day and they got a lot of things wrong. That should give us pause today to think, I need to not be arrogant. I need to show some caution. I need to see like, the context of life. These are things to kind of slow us down a little bit. Another thing with mourning is that sin has consequences. <laughs> we could use Pastor Mark's example again, or others in church history, where you're going to have to deal with the decisions that you made. Um, um, it can be good or bad, um, in some of these, but it can be, it can go to take us down there to teaching. You know, how did they deal with this or that? It is really helpful for me to read someone that dealt with persecution. I mean, we, we could talk about persecution some, but we can't even fathom what that's like. When we've had um, people from war-torn countries to our house, and they hear the neighbor's target shooting, those poor men and women just almost can't sit still. I mean, and we've told them, oh, our neighbor just shoot, is shooting guns and it's a mile and a half away, and but it echoes through the hills and, and they, they can't even sit still. Well, there, there's a reason for that. So how did they deal with persecution? How did they deal with war? How did they deal with failure? It's really good things to think about. Um, along with what we can be taught, I think this is a big one. We, we've been here before. Um, in in church history, we see oh here's a a current issue of the day, but this isn't the first time this has been dealt with. So in the in the '90s, the circle I was well, not the circle I was in, but it may be peripherally connected to. The King James Version was a, big, was a big deal. Is it the only way? Is it, can you ever use a new translation? And there was smart, godly men and women that were making arguments. That was the only way, the only way, the only way. And I remember hearing a professor walk us through, this isn't the first time that's been a problem. This isn't the first time that's been an issue. When, uh, um, when the King James Version replaced the Great Bible, people didn't like it how dare you bring a new translation? I like my old one. If you back up even farther, um, you can go to Jerome's Latin Vulgate. How dare you put that in Latin? Latin isn't God's language. You can't do that. And, and Jerome's, what, the, the end of the 300s into the 400s? So history can teach us, hey, we've been here before. Let's, let's see some context to this. And then I think history can be encouraging as well. Um, When we see God's people being faithful, when we see God's people dealing with terribly hard things that we can't even fathom, and they said, I'm going to trust in my Savior. I'm going to trust in my Savior. When we see um, just God working in a variety of ways, I go home. And I say, God is good. He was good in this year and he's good in this year and he's good in the future and he's coming for us. So I think, I think those are all things that we can learn from, from history. Yes. Uh, the, the point on teaching. And, you know, one thing history teaches us is that we're gonna repeat ourselves. Yes. So right, you know, through church history, a lot of the persecution of the church came from somewhere else in the church. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it certainly could. Yeah, a lot of the, as, as Jim has, has mentioned, a lot of the, the fighting and the issues within uh, in churches are, are inter church, or at least in greater quote unquote Christianity. Uh, additionally, a lot of persecution is when Christians are odd in society. And the Bible talks a fair amount about Christians being odd in society. That there's going to be things you go along with and things that you don't, and uh, sometimes that's pretty offensive to people. Additionally, that's actually one of the reasons even in Judaism that they were persecuted throughout the generations, was Jews never assimilate. If they do assimilate, they kind of disappear, but pockets of Jews virtually never assimilate. Language, uh, patriotism or lack thereof, uh, culture, they don't assimilate, and that's one of the reasons they were often deeply, deeply persecuted. Um, so yeah, things, things to learn from that. So uh, we're going to move now into 1st and 2nd century spread of Christianity. How did God accomplish this? What are some means that he chose to use? Um, over, over all of that, we would strongly argue that when you're sharing the truth, the truth will set you free. The truth is Jesus came for truth. And so, so the, the message is, if, if you read, if you took a, a comparative religions course, they would say, well, this, this religion spread like wildfire here, this religion spread like wildfire here, and that's just because things happen that way. Or, but, but we know without a doubt that Christianity was spread, uh, not by force, although at times falsely by force, but um, very generally and very normally and very typically was individuals such as yourself sharing Christ with individuals such as yourself. And there was church leadership, and there was organization, and there were um, councils and groups getting together and saying, is this what the Bible really says? But by and large, the gospel went forth when we all said, hey neighbor, hey sibling, hey person that I know, let me tell you about Jesus. But there were some other things that certainly helped as well. Um, So we look at the Dispersion that happened in Israel, um, you look, uh, so Assyria comes down uh, 726 B.C., 722 B.C., in that window right there, and they, they yank the, the 10 northern tribes, and they, they spread them north into Assyria, think Asia Minor and, and east of there and a little bit south of there as well. Um, and most of those assimilated into Assyrian culture. They put them in really small pockets generally, but some true Jewish believers survived in those areas. I'm gonna say not a ton, but but some did. Then if you fast forward a little bit to 605, 597, 586, Babylon comes over and they say, you know, here we go, take the stuff out of the temple. We can read Esther and Daniel, and they drag them away into babylon and they're there in babylon but it's not just you know they get spread throughout the culture and and the area there um many of them as jeremiah encourages them you know do do good in the place where god has put you um have commerce raise families look to god and many of them did that and so then we have the returns of ezra and nehemiah and, and, and some came back. But you know, if you read the numbers in Ezra and Nehemiah, a high percentage did not come back. So Jews were left all over the place. And Jews continued to just kind of scatter throughout what eventually became the Roman world. Alexander the Great, become, you know, he makes um, Greek become the normal language of the day, 330 BC. Um, he doesn't live long. He doesn't rule long. Uh, c- the country eventually gets split up four different ways. Uh, eventually, if you fast-forward a little bit more, one of his generals, Ptolemy, and his son, Ptolemy II, um, he does the, the Septuagint, the LXX, so that's the uh, supposedly 70 writers in 70 days churned out a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and this would be around the year 250-ish B.C., and so suddenly then... Hebrew is dwindling, Aramaic is dwindling and they're sister languages, and Greek is taking over, and so people are oh i can I can still have the Hebrew scriptures in a language that I can read." Um, some people would argue you might in Septuagint that it was seventy two people translating and six from each of the twelve tribes, but we don't know that at all. but anyway they they turn that out quickly um the, the Greek language becomes the norm. So all of a sudden this common language is such a big deal. And and we just, you know how important that is. If you go to a country now um, and they speak so many different languages, it is really hard. It's hard to communicate. You know, we go, we, you know, interact with, with the Afghans and you think, oh, they speak Dari or Pashto, but there's really like a hundred dialects that the different ones speak. And so the men always speak one or both, um, but many of the women do not. Some of the women, they will speak like a, a local dialect with their husband. And so how do you interact with them? And then you, you go uh, education uh, with the Afghans. We'll keep going with that. I think uh, 40% illiteracy. Now, not necessarily in the ones that have come to the United States, but communicating with out the ability to read i mean you've got serious challenges there so the simplicity of koine greek which those who and i some in here have taken greek um you know i remember my i think your sophomore year you take greek i think but i remember and in your junior year and then you maybe take exegesis your senior but i remember thinking this stuff's killing me but compared to a lot of languages pretty simple and set up in a pretty understandable way. Um, so so people could read more at this time. People could speak a common language, commerce, all those kind of, of different things. Um, Josephus says at this time, coming up to the time of Christ, that the spread of Jews, that there was a million Jews in Egypt alone. So it tells you what kind of... Now, Josephus at times exaggerates. And so actually in one place, he says, just in Alexandria, but that would be impossible. But he, he would say there's just Jews everywhere spread out all over the place. You have to see preparation for the gospel going forth, very much so at that time. Um, Roman world, peace and travel. Uh, Rome was the first, the first country to institute, we're going gonna to pay to make sure we have good roads so our military can travel. And certainly Germany did that, and the United States did that in the 50s. <laughs> um, at a At a greater level, but Rome was doing that early on, so travel, commerce, safety they prioritized peace on the roads they didn 't want the uh, good Samaritan parable to be happening very often, so peace on the roads is a big deal, and Rome my opinion would be they 're pretty brutal against bad stuff happening, like they would be you would be warned. Don't cause a problem in the kingdom. We could think crucifixion. We could think other things. Rome didn't mess around, got people pretty serious about things. And I also argue that Rome was very organized. And if you talk to most military people, I don't see Patrick in here right now. I see Annette. But it, but anyway, you know, if you talk to Patrick about military, he's talking organization the whole time. And, and Rome was really, really organized. It made a, a very, very big deal. Uh, persecution spread the gospel. But be careful with that. Um, Be careful with the statement. I remember hearing growing up people saying persecution is always good for Christians. Um, I I always heard that growing up, and it would kind of the idea of persecution comes, it refines those that are on the fence. It pushes those that are not truly Christians to identify themselves as non-believers and the true believers stay faithful to Christ. Uh, so I kind of heard that my whole life, and people quote that a lot. But if you, if you look historically, sometimes, often, many times that really does happen. But a ton of the time, there's groups that get annihilated off the map. So if, if we had a, a map in here, and we could look at North Africa um, in, in the year uh, 150 to 200, the groups that would identify as Christian— now there's some goofiness among some of that Christianity, but it, it was like there was a swath there, a big swath all along the top. Well, what's going on with Christianity there now? You know, Muhammad was born in 570 AD, and he effectively annihilated 98, 99 percent of all the Christians from that area. Now you could take out pockets of Egypt, you could take out pockets, you know, the Coptic Church there now, and and some other places. But by and large, you know, you go hang out in Libya, there's not a lot of Christians there. Uh, you go hang out, you know, talk with Heath Dame, how many Christians are there? There's not that many. Um, Tim Kazee, a missionary, has a missions organization, Frontline Missions. He, he did a talk one time that I went to, and he kind of outlined their, their attempts at reintroduction of Christianity in North Africa. And it's just heartbreaking. There's ruins of this and ruins of that, and there's, there's not believers in that area. Or here's one, there's two over there. We heard there's a pastor over there, and we're going to try to meet up with them. Now, by God's grace, even in Morocco, it has some more freedoms. Heath was telling me some, some stories this past week, and, and God's doing some terrific things. But persecution at times takes Christians out of an area. And sometimes... Christians move to safer areas, take their family and say, well, I'm going to take the gospel over to this area. And sometimes Christians say, I'm going to stay here and, and die. Uh, I think it was Bunyan that did a, a sermon on that, like when, when you should flee and when you should stay. Is there, is there one that you should do? So as Christians, should you stay and say, they're going to come for me and I'm just going to, I'm going to fight or I'm going to give up and I'm going to die. Or should you flee to a free country where you can keep raising your kids and sharing the gospel? And Bunyan's uh, final part of the sermon or, or speech, I couldn't tell quite what it was. It's not set up like a normal sermon, was you can do either one. You stand before God. So what do you want to do? You want to stay? You want to know as Leonidas, which was Origen's father, do you want to just say, I know they're going to come for me and you're going to take me out? God's going to take care of my family? Or if he chooses not to, he's going to take them to himself in heaven? Okay. Or do you want to say, hey, let's go to a safer area? Either one, as long as you're looking to Christ and honoring God, both within the boundaries of what God would desire. Um, so, so those are some things that help spread Christianity. A, a couple other things here. Um, burial of the dead and value of life. You've, probably, you've heard those enough. We don't need to go into details there. But that was a big deal to people. You know, dead dude laying on the street you didn't, and dogs. You didn't just let a dog chew on him. You were going to actually give him a real burial but he isn't even a Christian. He's just a dead guy on the street. Showed value to that body. Why would you care about a body? Very evangelistic back then. That was, you people care in ways that are weird. Um, Unwanted children, you see value in an unwanted child. We had twin daughters. We don't even have that much money. Maybe we'll raise one. Maybe we won't raise either one. You want to raise that? It's a girl. You're going to have a girl. I mean, we can't fathom that in our society, and our thinking now. But at that time, I'd do whatever you want with it. Generally wouldn't happen with boys, but could. And we see value. I mean, so these are some of those things that we see in the past that pushes us to the future now. We see value in people. We see value in 98-year-old people. We see value in people with special needs. We see value in babies. And we don't just say we see value. We put feet to our faith. There's adoption and foster care and visiting the little old lady in the nursing home and and whatever else. And being kind and being respectful. Those are all Christian things that we might think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. If you and many of you are spending time with Afghans and Congolese and and Burmese and, and others, and some of those are Christians. I know like the the Burmese, the Gaulies are interacting with. They're professing believers. I think I think Beth, you Congolese couple, though their English is not strong, they're I think they're they profess faith. And but if, if you spend time with non-believers, some common value like, so we think in, in our world, we see, oh, non-believing neighbor, man, you know, that, that guy struggles with drugs, or non-believing neighbor, man, that guy's angry. You can see He's screaming at his dog, and he's, you know, yelling at his wife. And but we think, oh, people from other countries that are Muslims or Buddhists or whatever. Oh, but without Christ, that that is life without Christ. And so you can you interact with someone from Afghanistan, and they're super rude to their wife, and you think, oh, (laughs) stop, (laughs) don't do that. Well. Like, they don't have Christ in their life. And so some of these, what we think of just as common graces, these are uniquely Christian things that are compelling to people that don't have Christ. And so when I brought a few Afghans in here and uh, a, a, a teacher and Tracy give them a big wave and said hi, these guys think it's weird that people are friends, like, why would these people be so friendly and americans aren't just like look all the same that lady's from another country maybe and they i introduced them to annette's class and here's a kid in here whose whose stepdad is from london and here's another kid who's from uh ethiopia originally and here's a girl that's from south america and people are being kind in ways that they often are not kind to each other these are these are big things that we can look historically and now. God pushes us with these things. Um, real love, Tertullian um, says, pagans were amazed at real love, and he doesn't give us more. I didn't. I didn't. I don't have a longer quote, but that's kind of the idea. People on the outside were saying, "How could you be loving to unloving people? How could you be this kind?" Love of Christ pushing and pushing and pushing and growing uh some some hindrances that I wrote down uh the the common one that you 're aware of you know misunderstanding of love feasts and baptism i I did some reading this week where they were saying that that the the catechumens, people kind of in training were actually putting babies inside loaves of bread pre communion that there was some pagan writing connected to that pretty pretty awful there um some stuff with baptism, some stuff with, you know, the holy kiss that's, that's pushed in scripture um, was virtually taken out at this time because the assumption that that uh, evil and immorality were happening there. Um, and Christianity is kind of exploding. In Bithynia, which is on the Black Sea, there were so many believers that a Roman leader wrote to the emperor concerning how to deal with them. He says this, um, and Pliny, the Roman historian, writes this. He says, a great many individuals of every age and class, both men and women, are being brought to trial. and This is likely to continue. It is not only the towns, but it's in small areas and villages and rural districts too, which are infected through contact with this wretched cult. So people are saying like, I know Christ. I found forgiveness. I don't have a perfect life now, but I'm trusting in Christ. Let me tell you about him. And he says it's infecting the villages. It's going all over the place. It's not just... The trained, educated bishops in big cities, but truly it's a boots on the ground. i got to tell my friend. That, that's how stuff, how, how the gospel was going forth. Um, Claudius expelling Jews from Rome. There's in writing, and he spelled it crestus, but it's probably Christus, Christ. Um, uh, Christianity. So another hindrance would be the often messy. I put messy Christianity at this, at this time. Um, you just if if you do some church history reading, you'll think, "Wow, this church father is so interesting," and "Wow, he's so good on this," and "Oh my goodness, he's so terrible on that." And there's just there's a lot of that, and I think that's another one of our reminders: we can be wrong. There's a reminder of humility. There's a reminder of going back to Scripture. Back to Scripture. There's a reminder of what a gift it is to us. To have scriptures in our language that we can open them up and say, thus saith the Lord. And your average person at this time did not have that. And so they, if they wanted to hear what the Bible said, would go to a place, would go to church, would go to a a house church and hear someone else read. Or there might be, I have some copies here. You have some copies there. Hey, there's a letter coming down from here and the guy's going to read it. Be there on Tuesday night. But, but we have such a gift with our stacks of Bibles in our houses and apps on our phones and all those different things. And, and the, there's all kinds of wacky things in greater Christianity today, but having access to the Bibles for all squeezes that down because it's like, are you, are you following the scriptures, or are you not following the scriptures? What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about that? And true Christians push that, and push that really hard. So uh, a lot of odd stuff was happening at this time. You know, Martyrs are being worshipped. Um, various reading levels of people. Tons of syncretism. Syncretism is the mixing of Christianity with maybe native religion, and so there was just a lot of that. The gospel would go here. Someone might have a misunderstanding of trinity, misunderstanding of a lot of different things. And we're going to be talking about some councils and different things, which tighten things up and push people to the outside that were not truly of the faith, reminded people of what really is of the faith. But there was a lot of that at that time. Um, some, some early translations that were done and that kind of went on, but there was some, there was some kind of funky translating at the time as well. So um, Marcion is an early heretic and um he had a canon of scripture he he hated jews it's tough to be a much of a translator when you hate jewish people but uh he did and so i think he had 10 epistles in luke and luke's a, a, a good book to use if someone is dislikes or is is learning that they can and should like jewish people Um, so if you have, you know, with the Afghans, we do, you know, if you're going to give them a book of the Bible, it'd be a Dari translation of the book of Luke, so that it's the first time they hear Jew, they're done, Um, so as a starter, I think that's a good thing, but Marcion was like, no, nothing about the Jews, they're rotten, we hate them, and so, um, and he had a canon, well, quickly, the the, the early church was like, our canon came after Marcion's canon, because we didn't really see a need for it, until we saw what Marcion was doing, and saying, hey, there's your New Testament. There's there's your Bible. That's all you need. And people are like whoa 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 whoa, we've got other letters. We we've got this letter from John Mark that is a really. This one should be in there too. We should have this writing. What about what about what John wrote us? Please, really. And so so canon really pushed that way. Another heretic. Um, well, it's a group that became the Montanists. They were kind of the other way. Uh, they kind of wanted everything to be part of canon, if you will, because they were kind of the early, an early group of out of control with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit just kind of goes here, there, and everywhere, and he gave me a message, and it's just as as, valuable as this letter I have from the Apostle John. And so the Montanists were like, this is true, and this is true, and I had this experience, and so they were like, they were making a canon that was everything, And anybody could have, you know, Kim could say something, and and uh, Amy could have a different thing, and well, we'll just add them both, even though they disagree. So it's just out of control thing. And so, if the the Marcionites push the early early church to grow its canon to what it should be, and the Montanists cause the early church to keep it as it should be, and not let it just be this big out of out of control thing. Uh, And and in translation, sometimes translation makes us uncomfortable, and we're not going to spend much time in translation. Um, But if you just think of it this way, so translation at that time would be really difficult. Some of us could read well, and some of us could not. So even someone that could not read well, at times, it'd have scriptoriums. And some of this would be in in later centuries as well, but just we'll talk about it now since we're we're here. Um, So even if I couldn't write well, I could take your copy here, and I could have my copy here, and I could copy it almost like I would copy a picture, even if I wasn't a good reader. Well, you could understand how you know ninety nine percent of the differences in 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 uh, manuscripts are connected with prepositions, articles, that kind of thing um, so you could see if you were copying it almost like it's a picture, you could see missing dashes and dots and, and uh, minutiae, or, oh, did I leave this out, okay? Then you add, some of the script terms would have this. So it would have the person with the, with, the, with the New Testament manuscript might be here, and every one of you has a piece of paper in front of you and a pen, some type of pen, okay? And you're all going to write. But Jim's super gifted. He's going to do two, because I'm reading really slowly. I'm reading it, I'm rereading it, and you're just write, and you're writing it down. Jim's doing two, you know, Dustin's crazy gifted. He's doing three and he's kind of helping his wife with hers a little bit or vice versa. So you can see how little teeny, teeny differences are going to come about. They were trying to get, get the scriptures out. So, so don't let it stress you when it was, oh, there's 5,000 manuscripts or there's this, those differences are minute and there's reasons for them. And there's some, also some, uh, funny stuff. I, There was an irish one that i read a while back and um the guy had extra time it must have been really gifted so everybody's everybody's writing while the guy speaks and 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 this guy he's doing his translations at the same time he draws this big picture of a dragon on the front and he says uh whoever messes up this translation may this dragon kill him in terrible ways well, so he's like drawing the picture while he's, while he's doing this, okay? So there's just a little bit on translations right there. Um, we could look at different people that, that persecuted uh, Gnosticism, big deal at that time. Gnosticism, basic idea would be higher thinking, higher learning. The body, the physical body is bad. Um, you know, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. It'd be a problematic verse for them. Um, 1 Corinthians... Therefore, glorify God in your body. Um, some people probably made 25 years ago. Gnosticism was discussed a lot more than it is now, and um, it was so diverse and kind of spread all around. But that was definitely an issue. Um, um, oh, let's do let's do this in the last couple minutes that we have right here. Um, Novation was a um, church leader who was very, very conservative. There's persecution going on at the time. I think it started under Decius, maybe 250 I think Decius and Diocletian, I think, are the two worst persecutors, but Decius it was more widespread. And um and so people were he was saying, hey, you had to burn a little incense to the emperor, and emperor worship was such a such the norm. We'll talk about that in future weeks. But so people were saying, in a group this size, say half the room would would say, they would go there, and they would, no, I'm I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I got my little kid next to me, and I I burned the incense, or I bowed the knee, or I said, you know, the emperor is lord. But some of you did not. And so so, so Esther did not, and her daughters were killed in front of her, and for some reason she was released, and she comes back here, and she's sitting next to people, who they denied Christ, and then they're happily with their family. So like, feel the tension of that in a church. Plus, you're in a house church. Generally, it's going to be a smaller group even than this. But, so there were the lapsed, and there were the confessors. And, and who is right? And, and the lapsed say, so then someone else would, would confess their sin and say, I am, I am so sorry. This was so wrong. Can Esther forgive them? Is, does something need to happen to them? We could go into more detail, but this kind of became a group of the church saying, "Is the church a school for sinners, or it is a holding tank for the holy?" And so, can you only, and 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 it kind of became a one or the other. When really we know it's the both. And and then, what do church leadership do with that? These people are fighting. These people are splitting off churches. And so, so then it gives rise to the future of church-organized penance and church-organized indulgences and purgatory. Because what do we do with sin in the group? Because many of the church leaders at that time would communicate to a degree, I am sinless now. So the sinless perfectionism that some of you might deal with in Wesleyanism or, or Methodist backgrounds... <coughs> it's, we've been, we've been here before. This, this kind of thing was going on right here. So I'm just going to stop right there because we're out of time. We will go into the third and fourth century this next week, have a little bit about Glandina as well, and uh, looking forward to spending time with you. So you're, you're dismissed.